Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. I'm Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Skirball Campus and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast and a conversation with Professor Alexander Kay. Professor Kay is the Carl, Harry, and Helen Stoll Chair of Israel Studies at Brandeis University, where he teaches and publishes on the relationship between law, religion, and politics, and in particular, on the history of religious Zionism. In 2020, he published The Invention of Jewish Theocracy, The Struggle for Legal Authority in Modern Israel from Oxford University Press, which won the Salo Baron Prize for Best First Book in Jewish Studies, and was a finalist for the 2021 Jordan Schnitzer Award in Philosophy and Jewish Thought. Alex Kay, welcome to the College Commons Podcast, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be with you. In your book, The Invention of Jewish Theocracy, you respond to the position of those who want the law of the state of Israel to conform to the Jewish traditional religious system of law known as halakha. Would you start off by walking us through their argument? Absolutely. Their argument is one that is by now extremely familiar to people that follow the debates over religion and state in Israel, uh, which is simply that the government and laws of Israel should be under the auspices of, of halakha, of traditional Jewish law. And in particular, the people that I write about are Orthodox rabbis. So when I refer in our conversation to traditional Jewish law or halakha, I'm talking specifically about uh, Orthodox halakha. And the people that I write about, as I say, are, are Orthodox rabbis, and they are also Zionists. And they look at the state of Israel and, and see something that, by and large, they fully support. They're extremely excited in the middle of the 20th century to see, after um, decades of uh, the growth of the Zionist movement, the establishment of a Jewish state for the first time in two millennia. They see this as a momentous, if not miraculous, occasion, and they're fully, fully supportive by and large. But what they also want, they, they want this Jewish state to be run by halakha, to be run not by laws that are made up by David Ben-Gurion, or laws that were invented by the British Empire, or laws that were inherited from the Ottoman rulers of Palestine before the British conquered it after World War One. They believe that, that halakha, the Torah essentially, has the potential to govern every aspect of human life and certainly has the ability to govern a Jewish state. And that is what they want to see happen. So that's the, that's the goal um, of the people that I write about from the 1940s on. And it's a position that became increasingly popular and increasingly entrenched in the religious Zionist movement. And um, so that today in the 21st century, I would venture to say that certainly among the religious leadership of the religious Zionist movement today, that is a, an extremely popular position among the overwhelming majority. So thank you for that introduction. And by way of clarification, if I may, when we speak about the rabbis who are the proponents of this position, it bears pointing out that when we talk about halakha in relation to Torah, 
uh, we're talking about a system of law that derives from Torah, but is mediated and ramified and applied by the very rabbis arguing for this authority, right? That's exactly right. The people that are arguing that halakha should govern the state of Israel are arguing that and this halakhic system um, should be one that is both interpreted and applied by the rabbis and which rabbis, are, although th those, those are the very people that are arguing for this system to be the system that governs the state. Great. Just to establish the interests of the various parties at play. Against this backdrop, share with us your understanding. I think for many people today, the idea that I just outlined, which I'll call just for shorthand, the idea of the halachic state, the idea that the state should be run by halacha, to many people today, the idea that Orthodox rabbis should want the state of Israel, a Jewish state, to be governed by halacha, seems kind of obvious. I mean, what else would an Orthodox rabbi want? For people that believe that halacha can govern every aspect of human life, including the politics of, of a modern state, of course they would want a Jewish state to be run by a halakha. But what I find in my research is that actually this idea, the idea of a halakhic state, is not something that's obvious or taken for granted. And it's not something that, that is a very old idea. In fact, on the contrary, um, I argue that it's an idea that was really quite new, essentially invented really in the middle of the 20th century. And before the 1940s, there were also other Orthodox rabbis and leaders and thinkers that were also committed to the Zionist movement and thought deeply about what the role of Torah and the role of halacha might be in a Jewish state when and if it would be established. But they came to different conclusions. Whereas the people that we, we talked about um, just earlier who follow the idea of the halachic state believe that halacha should be the exclusive law, the only law that governs the entire state. Earlier visions, earlier ideas thought that halakha, of course, should have a role, but it should only be one of the kinds of law that might be operative in a Jewish state. And what I argue is that that position, that more legally pluralist position, is actually a position that is more in sync with a very, very, very long history of the way that Jewish law was practiced in Jewish communities throughout the entire world, really, over many, many, many centuries. And it's the idea of the halachic state, which is actually a newer way of thinking. So give us one pre-modern example and one modern or contemporary example that illustrates your argument. If we look for pre-modern examples, there are just innumerable examples to choose from because really every single Jewish community over centuries, really millennia, was organized around a what I'm calling a legally pluralistic structure. So legal pluralism is a term that I'm taking from the academic field of, of legal studies, and it refers to a geographical area in which more than one uh, legal authority exists at the same time. So just by way of illustration, Christian medieval England had numerous legal uh, authorities operating at the same time. There was the law of the king. Um, there were guilds that had their own laws. There were universities that had their own laws, their own courts. Of course, the church had its own law. There was maritime law. There were all these different laws that kind of overlapped each other and 
occasionally competed with each other and jostled with each other for, for primacy. And, you know, if you had a, um, a legal question, you might go to one court uh, within one legal system and get one answer to a different court and get a different answer. That was true in medieval England. If we go to Muslim cultures, a uh, very similar state of affairs. In other words, most of the world before the modern period had this legally pluralistic structure. And the same was true of Jewish communities. In Jewish communities, halakha was extremely important. Almost all Jews before the modern era considered themselves as bound by halakha. That is undeniably the case. But there were other kinds of law that Jews before the modern era also considered themselves bound by. For example, there was the law of Dina de Malchuta, the law of the state, which according to the Talmud, was binding on Jews, even though it didn't come from rabbinical interpretation or the Bible. It came from non-Jewish kings, rulers, bishops, the Pope even. But Jews considered this law binding upon themselves. That's from outside of the Jewish community. And inside the Jewish community, there were also non-halachic kinds of law. For example, the lay leadership of Jewish communities was responsible for legislating different kinds of law, whether it be taxation, laws about what people could wear, laws about wages or prices that people could charge for goods, all different kinds of laws that were legislated not by rabbis, but by lay leaders who also set up courts that were non-rabbinical courts, but that worked side by side with rabbinical courts. So this is the system of legal pluralism, where halakha is a incredibly important, absolutely central authoritative law for Jews in the pre-modern world, but it's not the only one. And a contemporary example? Well, in the modern world, I think since the rise of the state in really the end of the 18th, but especially in the 19th century, beginning in Western Europe and then spreading out across the world, there has been a move in jurisprudence, in other words, in the legal thinking and the legal the way that states organize themselves, to move away from this legally pluralistic way of organizing communities to a more legally centralistic way of organizing communities. So, I mentioned medieval England earlier, which had all of these systems of law um, jostling alongside each other. When it came to the 19th century, there was a total overhaul of that state of affairs with, in the Victorian period, a whole load of acts of parliament that essentially unified all of this law into a single hierarchical structure that said there are not multiple kinds of law in England anymore. There is a single kind of law. It comes from the state, and that is it. And similar kinds of um, legal overhauls happened in many other countries at the time. And my contention is that the rabbis that I talk about in my book were consciously or unconsciously influenced by these developments in modern European legal thinking, and they kind of imported it onto their own way of understanding halakha. So whereas rabbis in the 19th century, 18th century, 17th century and earlier would have been extremely com comfortable with the idea of halakha being one of many kinds of law for a Jewish community, when it comes to the middle of the 20th century, that suddenly became an anathema to the leaders of religious Zionism. Let's learn about this really fascinating character of uh, Rabbi Isaac Herzog, who was so instrumental in rejecting legal pluralism and focusing on legal centralism for his philosophy of the state of Israel. Tell us about him 
and how his personality shapes this debate. Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Halevi Herzog was um, Israel's first Ashkenazic chief rabbi. He, he served alongside Israel's first Sephardic uh, chief rabbi. He was called Rabbi Chacham Ben Sion Usiel. He was born in Poland and moved with his family pretty early on to England. He was internationally recognized as a, as a leading rabbinical authority. What makes him particularly interesting, though, and unusual is that alongside his religious training, he also had an extremely wide general education. And he studied um, in the University of London. He studied at the Sorbonne in Paris. He understood Greek and Latin and all, all different kinds of languages, was extremely widely read, um, and became a rabbi in Belfast and later in Dublin and became chief rabbi of, of Ireland, which was at the time newly independent from, from Britain before he um, came to what was then the British Mandate for Palestine and became chief rabbi there before the state of Israel was established and he became chief rabbi of, of Israel. So what I really wanted to, to hammer home about Rabbi Herzog is that he's an incredibly balanced character. Well, might get the impression from what I'm talking about here um, that he is, in, in a sense, one of the founders of this idea of the halachic state um, that today is associated with a certain kind of fundamentalism, extremism, and in some cases, even radicalism among religious groups in Israel who are insistent that are like only halacha can, can rule the day in Israel. And some of the groups espousing that kind of ideology today uh, are extremely uncompromised figures um, who are extremely distrustful of secular society in any kind of way. That was not the case for Rabbi Herzog. He did deeply, deeply care about the Torah. He was incredibly adamant that he wanted halakha to be the law of the state of Israel. But at the same time, his personality had a moderating aspect to it. Um, he was very, very open to different kinds of knowledge, to different kinds of people, to different kinds of compromise. And even in his religious thinking, he was absolutely committed to the idea that the state of Israel would be a democratic, modern state that was one in which um, all of its citizens would be full and equal members of the, of, of, of the state. For somebody like Rabbi Herzog, who wants the state of Israel to be run exclusively by halacha, there are sort of two ways you can go. You could say, I don't care at all about the secular world. It has to be halacha or nothing. And forget your egalitarianism and forget your democracy. And the state should be a theocracy and everything else should go hang. And that's not the route that Rabbi Herzog took. He took a, a different route, which is let's delve into halacha. Let's think extremely creatively, sometimes even radically, to find in the massive corpus of traditional halacha the interpretations that we need to find to do what we can to make halacha as egalitarian and as democratic as possible to make it fitting for a modern state. So he did want the state of Israel to be run by halacha, but he also did whatever he could in his sort of inventive and innovative legal thinking to make that position also accommodating of people who were not Orthodox Jews or not, Jew not Jewish at all, to make them sort of buy in as much as possible to this vision. So he was a complex character, despite coming in favor of a, a rather a unitary approach. You also point out in your book that colleagues in his day were themselves actually legal pluralists, as you've defined it. So 
we have a lot of texture and a lot of variability here, including, you know, significant pushes within the Orthodox world for legal pluralism in the state of Israel, all of which begs the follow-up question. Why is it the case then that this version of the halachic state, why is it so persistent? Why is it so insistent today? At the time Rabbi Herzog was thinking through these questions, there was actually a younger rabbi who at the time was called Goronchik and later changed his name to a name that listeners might be more familiar with, which was Goren, Rabbi Shlomo Goren, um, who decades later himself also became the chief rabbi of Israel. But at the time, he was a younger rabbi, still very brilliant. And he was asking himself the same questions that Rabbi Herzog and many others were being asked, which is, what role should halacha have in the state of, 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 of Israel? And Rabbi Goronchik, later Goren's opinion was, let's go down this legally pluralistic um, road and let's have two court systems in the state of Israel. Let's have a rabbinical court system and a civil court system. So, you know, if you want to sue somebody in court and in a civil matter, you can choose which court system, which court stream you want to go to. And, and he talked about all kinds of precedents in, in Jewish history for this. And Rabbi Herzog said, absolutely not. It's inconceivable that there should be any such a thing. There can only be one law, one Torah in a Jewish state, and that is halakha. There's no room for civil courts in, in, in Israel at all. And for all of you know his willingness to compromise in some area, both he and Rabbi Uziel, the two chief rabbis of Israel at the time that the state was established, and boycotted the opening event of the Supreme Court of Israel. And they just refused to come because they were so appalled at the um, establishment of a secular court system. These were rabbis who really felt that they had the entire law for the whole state ready to go. Rabbi Herzog had committees put together and raised funding to pay rabbis to write law books. You know, if you go into a legal office today or into a court, you see all the bound laws um, of the state uh, along the walls, you sort of in le these leather-bound volumes. Rabbi Herzog wanted the equivalent volumes of the state of Israel to look the same, but the law inside would be halachic law. And he set about actively writing these laws, even, as I said, if that meant being very innovative with his interpretation of halakha to make it fitting for a democratic state. So you've asked really a, a really important question. Given that there were these alternatives, what explains the success of this vision, the, the dominance of this vision of legal centralism? And if I could even strengthen the, the question in, in one other way, um, I mentioned that Rabbi Herzog had to be very innovative, for example, to figure out ways to make halakha fitting for a modern democratic state. The system that, that I mentioned that Rabbi Goren outlined with this two parallel courts, although in a way that sounds, you know, that, that he was more willing to play nice, if you like, with the secular powers in the state, in that model, there was far less need to compromise in the rabbinical side of this dual system. Because you could always say to people, hey, if you don't like the fact that the rabbinical courts um, tend to favor men over women or Jews, Jews over non-Jews, just go to the civil courts. You have that option. But for Rabbi Herzog, who wanted everything to be governed by halakha, he couldn't say that. He needed to find ways to make halakha more egalitarian and more democratic and, and did.
So now why did the system of legal centralism really become dominant and so dominant that to date it's taken more or less for granted? I think that the answer to that question is found not internally to religious Zionism itself, or really even internally to Judaism. I think to answer that question, we have to raise our eyes and look at the legal landscape of the modern state in general, not just Israel, but states in general. And I mentioned earlier that since the rise of the nation state, it was essentially taken for granted that the state would have one legitimate exclusive um, legal authority, and that was the state itself. In a way, the modern state is defined by the fact that it alone has full control over all of the normative authority within its, within its boundaries. And we see again and again in post-colonial contexts. So we're talking about states that are created after the end of imperial rule. We see again and again that the people that set up these states, whether they be in Asia or Africa or South America, are often um, people who have been um, anti-imperialist leaders, anti-colonial leaders, but people who were educated in the heartland in the capitals of the European colonial powers themselves and learned about how to found and run a state and its legal apparatus from the colonial powers. And that's why when you see um, you know, post-colonial states being founded, their constitutions tend to be modeled exactly on these very centralized European constitutions. And by the way, that's true of the state of Israel in general. I mean, the Rabbi Herzog's vision was not realized. The state of Israel is not run by halacha, much to his chagrin and to the chagrin of people in his circle and other people like him. Um, but the state of Israel um, was based on a kind of an amalgam of, of laws that, and, and legal traditions that came from Britain, that came from Germany, that came from Switzerland, came from other places, but mainly really European um, um, legal traditions. And I think that the same is true inside the religious Zionist world. This idea that the state itself can have only one single exclusive source of normative authority is such a powerful idea in the modern world that it seeped into even religious Zionist circles. And there's a deep irony to that. Uh, which is that when religious Zionists are arguing that the that halakha should be the exclusive law of the state of Israel, very often the argument that they're making is that they're being, in a way, anti-modern or anti-European. We don't want to draw on all this European law. We have our own law. We don't want to give up our own traditions. We have our own traditions. And that's true to a degree. That is legitimately what they are arguing for. But they're arguing for a model, a structure of law, which is drawing very, very heavily from that European tradition. The College Commons podcast is proud to be part of HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. HUC Connect features four programs, webinars, live conversations with social and cultural influencers on topics of civil society, arts and culture, religion, and redefining allyship, Community Connect, ready-made lesson plans for synagogue and community learning, The Masterclass, live sessions of Judaica with HUC faculty 
exclusively for our alumni. Enroll soon because seats are limited. And of course, the College Commons podcast, in-depth conversations with Judaism's leading thinkers. For more information about HUC Connect and all it has to offer, visit huc.edu slash hucconnect. And now, back to our program. You published, together with our friend and colleague, UCLA professor David Myers, collected essays by one of the 20th century's greatest Jewish historians named Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi. And one of these essays by this incredible historian tackles the problem of messianism and the projection of messianic hopes onto the modern state-building enterprise of today's state of Israel. Tell us briefly how you define messianism and answer the question, if you would, if you think that maybe in some corners it, from a religious perspective, impels this newly reinvigorated argument for an exclusively halachic state. That's a very interesting hypothesis. And there's no question that there is a tremendous amount of messianic energy in the religious Zionist community today. In other words, an energy which comes from a belief that the state of Israel isn't um, simply a state like any other state, but it's a state that represents the redemption of the Jewish people, and in fact, the redemption of all people. And in some circles, it represents the redemption of existence itself, the entire you know, kind of cosmic redemption. And what I hear in your question is that you're wondering whether there's something in that power of messianic thinking that in itself could also help explain this push to have halakha to play such a central, in fact, an exclusive role in the, in the running of the state. And I'm going to push back against the hypothesis in a couple of ways. One way is that certainly today, the messianic energy in religious Zionist circles um, is strong, and there has always been an element of it for sure. But in the 40s and 50s, and even in the 60s, certainly before the Six-Day War, I would say that the messianic element in the way that I just described it was not as central in religious Zionist thinking. It was certainly there, but to the extent that it was there, it tended to be expressed in different ways than the ways we're thinking of today. So for example, there was the religious kibbutz movement. It had a certain amount of messianic energy involved in it, um, but it was not interested in imposing halakha as the law of the state of Israel, so much it was thinking of Israel as a grand experiment in creating a perfect society that would have a socialist orientation. And, and of course, through the um, realization of the values of halakha as they saw it would stamp out inequality among among all people. And just one more also um, caveat to the to the hypothesis that you put forward is that if we go back to Rabbi Cook himself, Rabbi Abram Isaac Hakoin Cook, who really represents more than anyone else um, the foundation of this deeply most transcendental messianic aspect to the modern Zionist movement, he did think a little bit about what would be the legal organization of a Jewish state. Um, and he wrote about the long history of legal pluralism in the Jewish community. And he noted that there had been in ancient times 
um, a Jewish king who created his own laws and legislation alongside halakha. And he wrote that in the absence of a king, the authority of that king would devolve back onto the people as a whole. And he didn't expand on that too much, although it seems that even Rav Kook himself thought that alongside halakha, there could be this lay legislative and possibly even judiciary power in a Jewish state. So I absolutely agree with you that the the kind of messianic fervor that characterizes much of religious Zionist life today sort of adds a kind of energy and it adds a kind of radical element to some strands of religious Zionist society and leadership when it comes to pursuing their goals of halakhic establishment in Israel. But I don't think that there is anything intrinsic about a messianic ideology that needs to lead in to a sort of halakhic unitary position. So let's flip the coin. We've been speaking about the competing streams of legal pluralism versus legal centrism within the context predominantly of the Orthodox religious community in the first place. Let's look at the secular world of Israeli law. Give us a one-foot digest, a thought on the very tension of the state of Israel itself today as it ultimately washed out between Jewish law and secular law as we experience it now? Well, that tension is definitely present and plays out in two ways. One is, I would say, institutionally, and one is uh, substantively in the kind of law that the state of Israel um, applies. So substantively, um, there was always a question among secular lawyers in Israel, secular jurists, um, about how far the laws of the state of Israel should be based on the Jewish tradition. Some of the people I'm talking about were Orthodox Jews or Jews who had had Orthodox backgrounds, but many had not, but still understood Jewish law as if not something that came from God or something of religious importance, at the very least something that had national importance. In other words, there was something about Jewish law that was important to the Jewish nation, just like there was something about the Hebrew language or Hebrew literature or theater or whatever it may be that was important to Jewish national and nationalist aspirations. So there were, from quite early on, some attempts among Jewish lawyers to have the tradition of Jewish law, not as a religious ideal, but the, the the tradition of Jewish law to play a larger role in the law of the state of Israel. That by and large didn't play out initially in the in the in the first years of the state. But over the years, aspects of, of Jewish law have um, come into the Israeli legal system, whether it be through Supreme Court justices quoting halakha as kinds of precedent, whether it be in the language of the courts themselves. If you go and sit in the, you know, the Supreme Court and listen to the justices discussing a case, you will hear some terminology that is taken from the Talmud and is, you know, similar terminology that is being used in Orthodox yeshivot, but 
used in an entirely secular context. So um, Jewish law definitely does exist in a kind of secularized form, even in the civil secular law of the state of Israel, although it plays a relatively small role in that law. But institutionally, Jewish law plays a far more central role in the law of the state of Israel. And that is because in Israel, all aspects of what is called personal status law, that is law pertaining to marriage and divorce, and a few other things, all aspects of personal status law are governed exclusively by religious law. And that means that Jews who want to get married or divorce in the state of Israel can only do so under religious Jewish law. And by the way, Muslims can only do so under Islamic law and, and, and Christians under Christian law and so on. And by and large, religious courts in the state of Israel, and there are many of them in different religious communities, these courts have exclusive jurisdiction over marriage and divorce. Um, and this is, for many people, a serious problem and a serious in serious tension with democratic values, because it means that um, basically the only real way to get married inside Israel is through a religious court. The state of Israel compromises for this state of affairs by having a very, very developed system of civil unions. So it's possible to have a union not under religious auspices that has more or less the same legal standing as a marriage, although not an identical one. And it's also possible to get married outside of the state of Israel. And then when you come back into Israel, that marriage is recognized by the state. But there is still this, for historical reasons, this exclusive hold on marriage and divorce by religious courts. And it remains a, a very controversial issue to this day. So we've delved into many of the directions and difficulties uh, facing the modern state of Israel. I'd like to close by asking what single source, what single text did you discover in the course of this research that most surprised you? I had a real privilege during the, the course of the research for this book because a lot of the documents that I, that I used were from the personal archive of, of Rabbi Herzog, which now are part of the state archive of the state of Israel. But at the time, uh, were not. They were basically in some filing cabinets at the back of the third floor of a building called Hechel Shlomo in the center of Jerusalem. And I kind of sat on the floor of this very dusty, essentially a storage room, um, with my digital camera for days, um, sort of taking photographs of these documents. And it was quite a thing to hold in my hands, you know, the, the documents that he had written with his own hands, including his his diaries with the, you know, his own doodling on them and all, all of this kind of stuff. Um, there are many candidates for the sort of most surprising or most revealing kind of, of document that, that I discovered. But one of the sets of documents that I found was actually in the Religious Zionist Archive, which is in Mossad Harav Kok, also in Jerusalem. And there I found um, the minutes of the meetings that took place among this committee to create a modern halachic law for the state of Israel. And so you have the letters going backwards and forwards between Rabbi Herzog and other rabbis too, who had made themselves responsible for, for writing this law. And you have Rabbi Herzog saying, you know, it needs to be this way. It needs to look like a modern law book, okay? Don't give me all of the 
asides and tangents and long Talmudic explanations that you rabbis are used to writing. It needs to be really short, really to the point, like a modern law book. If you have any footnotes, make them short and put them in the margins. And then the rabbis would come back and they just weren't sure exactly how to write something in that format, because it is not a traditional way of thinking about or writing about Jewish law. One rabbi actually wrote a letter back saying, you're asking me to write the laws for a modern state. And many aspects of modern state law, of course, are not found in traditional halakha. You know, halakha doesn't deal with whether a uh, an electrical power plant can be open on Shabbat, for example. Y you might be able to interpret halakha in such a way as to give you that answer, but it's not immediately and obviously there. And somebody wrote back and said, you're asking me to do something here, which is like creating something, yesh ayin. You're asking me to basically to create something from nothing, ex nihilo, like the way that God created the existence something from nothing. And that for me sort of encapsulated the sense that these people recognized that what they were being asked to do was something radically new. Even though on the one hand, they believed that there must be in halakha ways to achieve the goal that they wanted to do, but they also recognized that the goal that they had set for themselves was something that was also very, very new. So that's one of the, that's one of the documents that when I, I saw that, I thought, yeah, that, that really gets at something deep mm -hmm. in this project. It's a great example for this incredible research, which was really just a wonderful topic of conversation and a pleasure to have it with you. Thank you for joining us, Alex Kay, on the College Commons podcast. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. And check out HUC Connect, compelling conversations at the forefront of Jewish learning. For more information about all that HUC Connect has to offer, visit huc.edu slash hucconnect.